welcome to the Audio Digest of the American Journal of Psychiatry. This is Dr. Susan Schultz with highlights for the month of November 2007. Please note that the full text of all articles may be viewed online at ajp.psychiatryonline.org, including all author affiliations and disclosures. This month will begin with our Treatment in Psychiatry feature, in which Irene Brody and colleagues discuss chronic restlessness with antipsychotics. Then we'll turn to a population-based study by William Copeland and colleagues on the relationship between childhood psychiatric disorders and crime as young adults. We'll also highlight a randomized controlled trial by Brett Litz and colleagues of an internet-based treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. This will be followed by articles on two large twin studies that demonstrate genetic overlap between certain anxiety disorders and personality characteristics. We'll then feature an editorial by Jordan Smoller on these relationships. Then we'll focus on brain abnormalities related to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. B.J. Casey and colleagues report on a study of frontostriatal connectivity and its role in cognitive control in parent-child dyads with ADHD. Michael Stevens and colleagues used functional MRI to identify brain regions with abnormal hemodynamic activity during an auditory oddball task among patients with ADHD. We'll conclude with an examination of OxyContin addiction by Denis Carice and colleagues. We'll also highlight the editorial by Richard Rawson and colleagues entitled, OxyContin Abuse, Who Are the Users? Let's begin with our treatment in psychiatry feature. This month's topic is chronic restlessness with antipsychotics, which is examined by Irene Brody, John Kane, and Stephen Martyr. The article begins with a hypothetical case report. Mr. B is a 34-year-old man with chronic schizophrenia. After he started taking risperidone, he developed an upper and lower extremity tremor with profound restlessness, especially of the legs. These symptoms worsened until he discontinued risperidone and began taking olanzapine. The tremor resolved, but the restlessness persisted. Mr. B stated that he had an irresistible urge to move and his discomfort was so severe that he couldn't sit through a 15-minute appointment without getting up and pacing the room. His mother reported that when the restlessness was at its worst, he was extremely irritable, easily agitated, and sometimes violent. Akathisia is often accompanied by a subjective sense of inner restlessness, anxiety, or dysphoria, and an urge to move. Most cases are acute, and related to medication dose. However, there are also chronic or tardive variants. First-generation antipsychotics are associated with higher rates of akathisia. Other treatment-related risk factors include higher drug dosage, rapid dose increase, and higher potency antipsychotics. Individual risk factors may include old age, female gender, negative symptoms, iron deficiency, cognitive dysfunction, and affective disorders. The diagnosis of akathisia may be difficult, 
particularly since the medications most often implicated in akathisia are those most likely to be indicated in the treatment of psychotic agitation. Akathisia is often mistaken for anxiety or worsening of psychosis, and anxiety and agitation often accompany akathisia and further complicate the differential diagnosis. Restless leg syndrome also shares many of the symptoms of akathisia. Furthermore, akathisia can vary over time within an individual patient, particularly in mild cases. Differentiating the movements in tardive akathisia from those in tardive dyskinesia can also be particularly difficult. One difference is that tardive akathetic movements can be voluntarily suppressed, at least briefly. Another difference is that akathetic movements are complex and purposeful in nature, demonstrating an intact motor control. It is recommended that patients be examined for acute, chronic, and tardive akathisia as part of a regular evaluation of extrapyramidal symptoms. A relatively complete examination should be performed before starting a new medication, every six months when patients receive a first-generation antipsychotic, and every 12 months for patients receiving a second-generation antipsychotic. More frequent monitoring is advisable for individuals at high risk, such as elderly patients. More frequent monitoring may also be appropriate after dose adjustment and when there is a concern about specific side effects. In many clinical settings, heavy caseloads make it difficult to administer a complete examination. A relatively brief assessment can be administered in less than three minutes by observing the patient for restless movements and asking about difficulty sitting still, restless feelings, and pacing. There is relatively little information available to guide clinicians who are treating chronic or tardive akathisia. Case reports and small randomized studies suggest that acute akathisia may respond to benzodiazepines, propanolol, or anticholinergics. These treatments are often inadequate for treating acute akathisia, however, and they may be even less effective in chronic cases. If it is feasible to reduce the dose of antipsychotic, this should be done gradually. Changing the patient to an agent with a lower liability for extrapyramidal symptoms, particularly clozapine, is supported by clinical evidence and by small randomized trials and case series. It is important to inform the patient that there may be a delay of weeks or months before substantial relief occurs. The hypothetical patient described earlier, Mr. B, had numerous trials of various antipsychotics. His restlessness would always quickly return, and it was worst with aripiprazole and zeprazidone. Improvements with benzodiazepines and beta blockers were equally short-lived. Eventually, clozapine was prescribed. Mr. B's dose was titrated to 100 milligrams in the morning and 200 milligrams at bedtime. He still has symptoms of restlessness, but they are markedly better and tolerable on the clozapine. Now we'll turn to the relationship between psychiatric disorders and crime. William Copeland and colleagues present Childhood Psychiatric Disorders and Young Adult Crime, a prospective population-based study. This analysis was part of the Great Smoky Mountain Study a longitudinal study of psychiatric disorders in 11 counties of North Carolina. 
three cohorts of children were recruited, ages 9, 11, and 13. Each was assessed annually, and the Copeland Report in this issue is based on data for over 6,000 pairs of interviews with children and parents when the children were ages 9 to 16. The outcome measure was arrest status between the ages of 16 and 21 years. The participants' criminal histories were harvested from the public access database of the North Carolina court system. The participants were categorized into four mutually exclusive groups according to their most serious criminal charge. The first group was comprised of those with no record of arrests. The second group included those arrested for minor offenses, such as shoplifting. The third group included moderate offenses, which were defined as primarily property crimes that did not involve serious harm to a person. The fourth category was severe or violent offenses, which were primarily offenses involving violence against persons or significant potential for violence. Among the young adults with a criminal record, 51% of males and 44% of females had a childhood history of mental illness. The population attributable risk is the proportion of adult crime attributable to childhood psychiatric diagnoses, and the authors estimated this to be 21% for females and 15% for males. These rates are substantial. For instance, the population attributable risk of myocardial infarction from being overweight is only around 11%. Childhood psychiatric profiles were identified for all levels of criminal offenses. Each level included conduct and or substance use disorders, but some also involved emotional disorders such as anxiety and depression. Arrest for the most serious offenses was predicted by four comorbid profiles. Anxiety plus substance use disorder, anxiety plus conduct disorder, depression plus substance use disorder, and depression plus conduct disorder. The comorbid disorders did not necessarily occur simultaneously. The moderate offenses included a range of property crimes and offenses involving possession of illicit substances, yet the only significant diagnostic risk factor was anxiety disorder in females. The least serious offenses were predicted by substance abuse, either alone or with anxiety disorders. The limitations of this study include the rural North Carolina sample, which was not representative of the U.S. population. The study also oversampled for American Indian children with very few African Americans and no Latinos or Asian Americans. Now we'll switch to a study of internet treatment of PTSD. Brett Litz and colleagues discussed their program in a randomized, controlled, proof-of-concept trial of an internet-based, therapist-assisted, self-management treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. The internet program is named De-Stress for delivery of self-training and education for stressful situations. It reflects the goals of reducing stigma and emphasizing the self-care aspects of treatment. The De-Stress acronym was particularly well received in the military context of this study. 
The participants were Department of Defense service members in the Washington, D.C. area. All participants were diagnosed with PTSD as a result of the 9-11 Pentagon attack or combat in Iraq or Afghanistan. 24 were randomly assigned to online cognitive behavior therapy and 21 were assigned to a control group that received online supportive counseling. Each patient had an initial face-to-face -face interview with a therapist at the beginning of treatment. Patients in both groups also had a periodic contact with the therapist during treatment. Two treatments were delivered on the internet over eight weeks. The program for CBT included the following homework assignments. Identification and ranking of situations that triggered distress, stress management strategies, graduated exposure to the threatening situations, writing sessions, and a progress review. For both groups, there were declines in total PTSD symptoms and specific declines in avoidance and hyperarousal symptoms. Among those who completed the study, the CBT group had a lower anxiety rating at the six-month follow-up. At this time, none still met the criteria for PTSD diagnosis, compared to one-third of those in the control group. The data were also analyzed for all subjects who entered the study. These analyses showed that at the six-month follow-up, 25% of the patients assigned to CBT no longer had a PTSD diagnosis, compared to only 3% of the control group. This is a small study. These results are also tempered by the fact that younger and more symptomatic service members were less likely to be available for a six-month follow-up, as they may have been more likely to be redeployed. Also, the completion rate for CBT was lower than the rate for the control group, although the difference was not statistically significant. Now we'll turn to the articles on genetic overlap between anxiety disorders and personality characteristics. Both are from population-based studies, including one by Kenneth Kendler and another by Michael Neal. The first one focuses on low extroversion and high neuroticism as indices of genetic and environmental risk for social phobia, agoraphobia, and animal phobia. Authors Joseph Bienvenu and colleagues analyzed data from the Mid-Atlantic Twin Registry. Lifetime phobias and personality traits were assessed in 7,800 twins from monozygotic and dizygotic pairs. Sex-limited statistical models were applied to determine the genetic and environmental liabilities shared among extroversion, neuroticism, and each of the three phobias. The results showed that the genetic influence on introversion and neuroticism accounted entirely for the genetic liability to social phobia and agoraphobia, but not animal phobia. Environmental effects shared by twins did not contribute to the correlations of introversion and neuroticism with phobias, and unique experiences had just modest correlations. The data for the other twin study came from the Norwegian Institute of Public Health Twin Panel. The analysis is presented by Ted reichborn Kennerud and colleagues in the relationship between avoidant personality disorder and social phobia, a population-based twin study. This study included more than 1,400 twins in monozygotic and dizygotic pairs. 
only female-female pairs could be analyzed because the prevalence of social phobia in males was too low. The prevalence of avoidant personality disorder was also low, and it was assessed with a dimensional approach based on the number of endorsed criteria. The statistical models revealed that avoidant personality disorder and social phobia were influenced by the same genetic factors. Environmental factors unique to each twin also had substantial effects, but the environmental influences on the two disorders were not correlated. These two articles are discussed in an editorial by Jordan Smoller, Genetic Boundary Violations, Phobic Disorders, and Personality. He points out that the extent to which genetic influences on two phenotypes are shared or unique can help clarify nosologic boundaries between the phenotypes. An important strength of the Bienvenu and reichborn kennerid studies is the inclusion of large population-based twin samples, which reduce the biases and spurious comorbidity that can occur in clinically ascertained samples. The intriguing results suggest that from a genetic standpoint, certain categorical anxiety disorders and dimensional personality traits may be two sides of the same coin. Bienvenu and colleagues found that there were no genetic risk factors for social phobia and agoraphobia over and above those underlying neuroticism and introversion. In contrast, the genes influencing animal phobia appeared to be largely distinct from those influencing personality traits. These findings have several implications for our understanding of the structure of phobic disorders. First, they help validate the nosologic hypothesis that all phobias are not alike. Second, they highlight the importance of introversion, a trait that has received far less attention than neuroticism in research on anxiety. A third and related implication is that personality traits are an appropriate target for researchers interested in the genetic basis of social phobia and agoraphobia. This study also raises questions for future research. The models do not explicitly address the question of whether there is a causal pathway from genes to personality to disorder. It should also be noted that the findings do not mean that phobias and personality traits are simply alternate descriptions of the same phenotypes. First, as this study shows, the phobic diagnoses also reflect environmental determinants that are distinct from those influencing personality. Second, by definition, a clinical diagnosis of phobia requires significant distress or impairment, features not captured by measures of personality. In the study by Reichsburg Kennerid and colleagues, the estimated heritability of avoidant personality disorder was 37%, which is close to the 39% for social phobia. Moreover, genetic influences on these disorders were entirely overlapping, while the environmental influences were uncorrelated. These data suggest that the genes influencing these two disorders are essentially the same and that whether a person with these genes develops one or the other disorder depends on environmental factors. An intriguing implication is that this phenomena can operate even across the boundary between axis 1 and axis 2. Given the phenotypic similarity of social phobia and avoidant personality disorder, 
One might worry that the genetic overlap occurs by definition because of overlapping diagnostic criteria. This does not appear to be the case as only a minority of individuals with one disorder met the criteria for the other. Again, these data cannot resolve whether genes act on phobic risk through the intermediate of personality or whether they have pleiotropic effects that result in distinct entities. Research by other groups, however, suggests a developmental trajectory by which genes influencing social anxiety are first expressed as inhibited temperament in childhood, a precursor of anxious personality traits and a risk factor for social phobia. Twin studies also can't tell us the number, effect size, and identity of the genes involved in anxiety-related traits and disorders. The evidence to date strongly suggests that these phenotypes are the result of many genes of small effect interacting with environmental factors. These studies complement previous research suggesting that genetic influences transcend the boundaries of DSM-IV anxiety disorders. Such findings do not necessarily mean that a redefinition of anxiety disorder nosology is needed. As Kendler has pointed out, the fact that two disorders share genetic determinants need not imply that the boundaries between them are artificial. Many genes are known to have pleiotropic effects, and the definition of a disease entity does not rest on its risk factors being unique to that entity. For example, recent genome-wide association analyses have shown that the same specific gene variant confers susceptibility to both rheumatoid arthritis and type 1 diabetes, but no one would claim that this undermines the distinction between them. At a minimum, however, such studies may reveal underlying pathogenic mechanisms that cross diagnostic boundaries. In the case of anxiety, evidence that genetic influences span different categories of disorders is complemented by neuroimaging studies. These findings suggest that hyperactivity of the fear circuitry involving the amygdala and insula is a phenotype underlying several different anxiety disorders. Taken together, genetic and neuroscience research provides support for incorporating dimensional phenotypes into the definition of pathologic anxiety syndromes. Ultimately, such insights should bring us closer to a nosology based on pathogenesis rather than descriptive categories. This concludes the highlights of the editorial by Jordan Smoller. Please refer to the November issue for the full editorial and the articles it discusses. Next, we'll highlight two articles on brain abnormalities associated with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. B.J. Casey and colleagues investigated frontostriatal connectivity and its role in cognitive control in parent-child dyads with ADHD. Cognitive control is the ability to suppress inappropriate thoughts and actions in favor of more appropriate ones. Neural circuits linking regions of the prefrontal cortex and the striatum have been associated with this ability. Less efficient cognitive control in ADHD has been shown to result from some form of abnormality in the development of frontostriatal brain circuitry. How development and refinement of projections within these regions may contribute to enhanced control remains an important question. The present study used diffusion tensor imaging to examine frontostriatal white matter tracts 
and performance of a cognitive control task in pairs of children and parents with ADHD. Diffusion tensor imaging can detect changes in white matter microstructure based on properties of diffusion. Diffusion of water molecules in these tracks is affected by myelin and the orientation and regularity of myelinated fibers. Water diffuses more readily in parallel rather than in perpendicular to a tract. This property is termed anisotropy of diffusion. Magnetic resonance imaging can be sensitized to water diffusion to yield a solution to the diffusion tensor. From this, variables describing the magnitude and anisotropy of diffusion can be derived. These variables can be used as a measure of myelination and white matter microstructure. Such measures go beyond simple gray and white matter volume by providing specificity in the directionality of fiber tracks. The participants in this study were 20 pairs of adolescents and parents, both of whom had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They were compared with 10 pairs of youths and parents without ADHD. A go-no-go task was used to measure cognitive control. During the task, functional brain activity was measured to identify portions of the ventral prefrontal cortex and striatum involved in suppressing inappropriate actions. White matter fibers adjacent to these areas were delineated by diffusion tensor images. These images were used to derive values for fractional anisotropy. Less functional activity in the prefrontal cortex and caudate nucleus during the cognitive task was associated with lower fractional anisotropy in adjacent white matter. Lower fractional anisotropy in the right frontostriatal tract was also related to poorer cognitive performance. Further, there was a correlation between the children and the parents with ADHD and fractional anisotropy in the right frontostriatal fiber tracts. The comparison parents and children did not show this association. Collectively, these data support previous studies indicating heritability of right frontostriatal brain structure among individuals with ADHD, and they suggest that atypical development of frontostriatal tracts could lead to cognitive deficits in this disorder. A second study of ADHD measured neural dysfunction related to attention and working memory. Michael Stevens and colleagues present an fMRI auditory oddball study of combined subtype attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. A consistent neurocognitive abnormality in ADHD is reduction of event-related potentials during attention-demanding tasks that require detection of infrequent stimuli which are referred to as oddballs. Brain responses to these novel stimuli reflect automatic intentional orienting and may be relevant to ADHD, in which distractibility is a central characteristic. The study participants were 23 boys and 23 matched comparison subjects between the ages of 11 and 18. They performed a three-stimulus auditory oddball task while their brain activity was measured with functional magnetic resonance imaging. The standard stimulus was a 1,000 Hz tone, and the target stimulus was a 1,500 Hz tone. The novel stimuli consisted of random digital noises. 
the participants were instructed to respond as quickly and as accurately as possible to every target tone. They responded by pressing a button with their right index finger. During the processing of the target stimuli, the participant with ADHD had less hemodynamic activity than the comparison subjects in the left middle frontal gyrus and the right superior temporal gyrus. In the novel stimuli, the boys with ADHD had hemodynamic deficits in the left inferior parietal lobule and the supramarginal gyrus and in the posterior region of the left superior temporal gyrus. The cortical focus of these abnormalities suggests that they may be separable from deficits in response inhibition or reward processing, which more strongly implicate striatal dysfunction. This adds more evidence to proposals that the causes of ADHD involve multiple influences on the same general neurobiological system. Now we'll turn our focus to substance abuse. Denis Carice and colleagues present data on prescription OxyContin abuse among patients entering addiction treatment. OxyContin is a sustained release preparation of oxycodone. It is an effective pain reliever but has sometimes been portrayed in the popular media as leading to addiction in patients for whom it is prescribed. Carice and colleagues examined OxyContin use among people seeking treatment for addiction who generally represent those with the most severe substance use problems. They analyzed data in the Drug Evaluation Network System, a federal registry of treatment programs. The analysis included a random sample of over 27,000 patients in 157 treatment programs. Approximately 5% of the sample reported ever having used OxyContin. Almost 90% of those patients reported using OxyContin regularly, and a similar proportion reported using it to get high. 78% reported that it had not been prescribed for a medical reason. Nearly all of the patients who reported ever using OxyContin also reported using other drugs of abuse. Also, the odds of using OxyContin were lower for patients who said they had never used heroin. Most of the OxyContin used by the people in this sample of treatment seekers originated from illicit sources, not from physician prescriptions. The opioid problems of this sample were part of a larger pattern of alcohol and other drug use. Those who suffered from OxyContin abuse or dependence shared many characteristics with those dependent on other classes of drugs. An editorial by Richard Rawson and colleagues asks the question, OxyContin abuse, who are the users? The authors state that the Carees article provides useful data from a valuable indicator of drug abuse, the Drug Evaluation Network System. It was established to collect information on individuals admitted to substance abuse treatment at selected specialty centers throughout the country. The data are collected by using the well-established Addiction Severity Index. The use of this validated instrument results in data with known validity and reliability parameters. The Drug Evaluation Network System provides a rich set of timely data that are captured and transmitted electronically at the time of admission. This allows for rapid analysis and transmission of information to policymakers 
about changes in the characteristics of patients admitted to the network's participating treatment agencies. Access to these current data is an important tool for the substance abuse monitoring system in the U.S. It is clear from this study that many of the people who enter these treatment programs with OxyContin abuse or dependence are not drug-naive, accidental addicts who were introduced to opiate painkillers by their physicians, as often reported by the media. The individuals admitted to these organizations are, for the most part, individuals with extensive drug use histories and involvement in the criminal justice system. Their use of OxyContin is related to the fact that in some parts of the U.S. there is easy access to it. Hence, OxyContin use among this group simply represents a drug preference based primarily on convenience. This is an important finding and adds a useful perspective to understanding the nature of the drug abuse problem associated with OxyContin. The sample examined in this study is an important segment of the population of OxyContin users. However, as noted by the authors, this sample is not intended to be a representative sample of the general population. The Drug Evaluation Network system collects information for a set of treatment programs that have volunteered to participate. It is not known how representative this sample is of the entire addiction treatment system, and the programs tend to be urban and suburban, while many of the OxyContin reports have described major problems in rural areas. Specialty abuse treatment programs have historically been where the most difficult patients are referred and treated. Large proportions of individuals who walk through the doors of these specialty clinics are long-term drug users who use multiple drugs, are often involved in the criminal justice system, and have numerous previous treatment episodes. Not surprisingly, OxyContin users who enter this specialized system for addiction treatment have many characteristics in common with the others who enter treatment there. However, there is no way of knowing if the OxyContin users who end up under the care of physicians prescribing buprenorphine in office-based practices have the same characteristics. It is possible that these naive accidental addicts, if they do exist, do not seek treatment at the specialty treatment centers. If there is a new unique cohort of addicted individuals who have become dependent on OxyContin, as a result of their accidental misuse of pain medication, it is highly possible that these individuals would not seek assistance at the treatment clinics where chronic polydrug criminally involved, previously treated addicts go for assistance. The question of who uses OxyContin is important. This is a drug problem in which the drug supply has emerged from a disturbing new set of sources, including the Internet, Gaining an accurate picture of who is affected is a bit like the story of the blind men who are asked to touch one part of an elephant and then describe the entire animal. Each set of drug use data from a specific source offers a detailed description of that particular sample, but it is never clear whether each sample accurately reflects the nature of the other samples. We need a more complete picture of the entire elephant before we can be sure who is and who is not affected by the OxyContin problem. This concludes the audio highlights of the November issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. We invite you to refer to the online issue at ajp.psychiatryonline.org for the full text of these and other articles.
We also welcome comments regarding this audio. They may be emailed to Jane Weaver at jweaver at psych.org. Thank you.